here before, but Mike Essen out of Columbus, welcome. Thank you, good morning. Uh, well, you can turn to Mark chapter 8. That's where we'll be this morning. How's everybody doing on a Monday? Doing okay? Yeah, great, great, good. Yeah, that sounded encouraging. So, yeah, I was uh, surprised to hear of a chapel on Monday, and uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes this morning. So, hopefully you're awake and getting ready. A, a lot going on here at Nebraska Christian. Exciting to hear that. Do I need to move the pulpit? Can everybody see? All right. All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38, and I was excited uh, when Gordon uh, contacted me about the fact that you guys were going through Mark, excited for that study. Our church uh, in Columbus went through Mark uh, a couple of years back. Uh, it's always a joy to study the life of Christ, to uh, read these narratives of our Savior as he walked with his disciples, as he performed miracles, as he uh, ministered to Israel. Uh, Mark is a bit unique, and maybe you've uh, discovered this as you've gone through it, in that of all the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is sort of the action gospel. It's like one narrative after another. It's like Jesus never sleeps, he never stops, he just keeps going, uh, and Mark gives these little snippets, these little narratives. There's not as much teaching in this gospel. It's more Jesus doing. It's a miracle here, it's ministry here, it's serving here, and Mark leads us up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. You'll see this uh, if you guys are going all the way through. The very end of Mark, it sort of goes, he rises from the dead, and it's done. Like it, it, Mark's just like, hey, I, I proved my point, let's move on. And he finishes it up. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good old, it, it, at least in terms of the Bible, it's like an action movie. Now, how many of you like action movies? Okay. Wow, way less of you than I thought there would be. How many of you like romantic comedies? Like, let's do the two opposites. Okay. So, what do all the rest of you like, movie-wise? Okay, great. Thanks for answering. Yes, Mark is sort of the action uh, movie. It, it, it's going fast. There's a lot going on. Now, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, just to kind of do a, a quick uh, recap of maybe what the purpose of this gospel is. I'll read it. You can look back there if you want. Mark writes this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, it might seem like there's not much there, but Mark is actually, this is the title, in a sense, of the whole gospel. In other words, Mark is saying, I'm going to present for you the good news. And that good news is this man named Jesus, who is not merely a man. He's, in fact, the Christ, that is the King that we've just sung about. He's also the Son of God, that is, He is fully God. He is true God and true man, as we'll see today. And Mark is saying this person, Jesus Christ, will come and give his life a ransom for many. And that's the buildup of this gospel. He's saying that this long-awaited king that the Old Testament talked about, he's going to come and he's going to serve mankind, us who are sinners, by dying on the cross. And so it's an exciting narrative as he goes through it. Again, Mark doesn't have like the story of his birth. Mark just gets right to his public ministry and it's going. And I hope as you guys have gone through this book and as we go through it today that you've come to uh, understand who Jesus is, that you've come to place your faith in him, uh, that you've committed your life to follow him. Uh, this passage today is a turning point really in the whole book. Uh, this is sort of the, 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 the book divides into two sections, and this 
uh, narrative that we're going to look at this morning uh, brings that division. Uh, you see up on the screen, the title for today could be uh, Getting Jesus Right. Uh, Jesus is going to reveal to his disciples his person, uh, his purpose, his plan for coming, as well what, as what it looks like to follow him. And these are, these are essential things that we need to understand this morning. In fact, I was thinking about, uh, you know, action movies, because, you know, all two of you who watch them uh, here this morning. And oftentimes in an action movie, there's, a, there's a, a major decision that needs to take place. You think of often, it's sort of the cliche, you know, uh, there's a bomb and you got to cut one of the wires. There's three wires, the guy or woman, the hero, the main character has to cut one wire. It's a, it's a huge decision. It's life or death. And you, you have that in every action movie. There time, the music gets real intense and uh, they're sweating and, and you're going, okay, what are they going to choose? You know, they're going to choose the right one or unless they die in that movie, but that's another thing. But it's these important decisions. In this narrative, we're coming to this, okay, for the disciples, they have to make a major decision about Jesus. Do they understand who he is? Will they follow him? And we're going to see that they're going to begin to come to those right conclusions. They're going to answer that question. They're going to make the right decision about him. We're going to see that they're on the road to that. As you ponder this today, there's a lot of decisions in life, especially for you as young people that are coming up. You think about the future. Where will you eventually go to college? Uh, what, what, what career are you going to choose? Who will you marry? Again, there's major decisions in life. What we're looking at today is the most important decision. You have to get this right. Because if you get it wrong, there's eternal consequences. And so this is why this is, again, a turning point in the gospel and essential for our understanding this morning. So three realities about Jesus we want to get right uh, that we're going to see today. And you'll see them up on the screen. Um, all three of them will be there uh, just so you can look at those. And we'll, we'll walk through the narrative in three parts. Number one, in verses 27 to 30, we're going to see we have to get right the person of Jesus. Who, who is he? What does the Bible tell us is this guy, this guy named Jesus Christ? Why is he so important? Let's pick up the narrative, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So the, what's taking place here is that Jesus is on sort of a, we'll call it a discipleship retreat with the 12, and there's some others, as we'll see later, surrounding them. But uh, it's been a really intense season of ministry. There has been, you know, wherever Jesus goes, after he casts out some demons, after he heals the sick, he's followed by a massive crowd. In fact, he's just fed the, I think it was the 4,000 earlier in uh, the beginning of chapter 8. And so Wherever Jesus goes, there's crowds, and, and there's a mixture. Some truly believe in him. Others of them, others just want free food, or they just want, hey, I have a sick relative. We want you to do that, uh, heal them, or Jesus, just do something that makes us happy and, and is exciting, and so he's followed by all these crowds. Well, finally, he gets away to this place. You see it there, uh, Caesarea Philippi, verse 27. Uh, this is a non-Jewish area, so most of the people who are following Jesus around aren't, aren't going to go here. So it's, it's his intentional way of saying, hey, 12, the 12 disciples, let's, let's get away. I need some time with you. Uh, we're going to see he wants to see where they're at in terms of their understanding of him. 
And so he takes advantage of this time by asking some questions of them. And he begins with this question, who do people say that I am? Jesus wants to sort of get a pulse on the crowds. He wants to say, what are, what are the opinion polls saying about me? Now understand that this isn't Jesus saying, I'm really concerned what people think. It's not that at all. Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the 12. He's trying to see where are they at. And, and he knows, but he wants to see how they express their faith at this point. And so he asked that question, uh, are, are the disciples with the, the masses? Are they with the crowd or is the crowd different than them? And you see the answer there. The, the disciples give sort of a, their understanding of what's going on with the crowds. In verse 28, they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And so they say, well, the crowd is, Jesus, the crowd is saying you're, 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 you're some sort of reappearance, apparently. They, they truly believe, some of them, some of the Jews, he might have been the resurrection of one of these guys, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was already dead. His head had already been chopped off. Or maybe you're Elijah. Elijah was a, a very famous prophet. He didn't die. He was taken straight to heaven, if you know that story in the Old Testament. But they're thinking Jesus is a, is a reappearance, and, and the Old Testament had predicted that maybe these guys would come back. And so the crowd thought, yeah, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of in, the, in a mix of just some really famous Jews, was the, the thought of the crowd, that he's one of the famous Jews, one of the famous prophets, Elijah, John the Baptist. In other words, the people's opinion was overall pretty good. There was a general respect for Jesus, but here's the problem. He was just like these other guys. Basically, they were saying that Jesus is merely a man. John the Baptist, merely a man. Uh, a, a, a famous man, a, a great man, a faithful man, but just a man. Elijah, a prophet, but just a prophet, just a man. He failed. He had his failings. And they're saying, you know, Jesus, you're in, a, you're in select company. You're up here with these really famous Jews, these famous prophets. And so again, while there's a respect, there, there's a problem there. They put Jesus along with them. So even though there's a respect there, they're getting Jesus wrong. He's just a famous, another famous Israelite. I mean, I think often today, you know, we always do this with famous people. We say, who's the most famous? Or in sports, you know, we, the, the question today is, who's the GOAT? You know, who's the greatest of all time? And in some sports, it's really confusing. You know, you think about if you're into the NBA, it's always Michael Jordan. People want to bring up other guys, but it's always Michael Jordan. You, you can't say LeBron James, just my opinion. But then you go to the NFL and everybody goes Tom Brady. And that, okay, that makes sense, even though he's still playing. So you, you have this sort of... In some sports, it's like, well, you know, there's a select few. We don't really know who. They're all just really famous. And then we try to distinguish who's the one guy who's the greatest. And there's always controversy. But in Israel, it was like, no, there's just, there's kind of a handful or, you know, a few more of this. All these people are the same. But that's a problem for Jesus in the sense of he is more than that. And so to say that Jesus is just another great person is to get Jesus wrong. And so this leads Jesus to say, okay, where are the disciples at? That's his main concern. And so he asks the second question, verse 29. But who do you say that I am? He wants to know, are they like the crowd or are they different? 
And then you have a very uh, a wonderful response from Peter. We'll talk more about Peter in a moment. He says, you are the Christ. Now, again, this is foundational. Again, this is a turning point. This is, this is massive in the book of Mark. Uh, this is massive in the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. They have come to believe, and, and understand the idea of Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. I just want you guys to know that. Christ means Messiah, which was a, 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 an Old Testament terminology. It means king. It means that Jesus is the long-awaited king, the anointed one. The Holy Spirit would be upon him. For the Jews, it was this idea that the king would come, he would defeat our enemies, he would establish the kingdom. They'd have been anticipating this ever since going, you could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. There's this anticipation that God is going to have this servant who's going to come and, and free mankind from the curse. Again, we, saw, we sing about this a lot during the Christmas season. That Jesus' birth, while super important, of course, we celebrate his entire life. We celebrate the incarnation and its purpose. We, we care about why Jesus came, not just that he came. And so uh, we always, all the songs during Christmas, are, you'll notice, are not merely about his birth. We just sang, Come, thou long expected Savior. We care the fact that Jesus came to die, as we'll see in a moment. But that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, You are the King, you are Lord. In other words, you're not just another prophet, Jesus. You're the guy. You're not in good company. You are in a class all to yourself is what G, uh, Peter, and he's representing the disciples, this is what he's saying. And so this is what the Israelites anticipated. This is what the disciples had anticipated. And now they're beginning to get it right. Again, they've seen the miracles. They've heard the teaching, and now they're beginning to understand Jesus in a, and separate themselves from the crowd. Matthew 16, 16, this is the same story. Matthew adds a little bit more to what Peter said in his response. It says there that he replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Matthew's account gives us a little bit more to Peter's answer. What he's saying is not just, not, not only are you the king, but he's saying, you're the son of the living God. Again, while the disciples did not fully understand all these things, what Peter's saying is you're, you're, you're true God. You're divine. So he's, no, he's, not, he's not Elijah. He's not John the Baptist. He's God. So this is, a, again, a foundational answer from the disciples. While they are still trying to figure things out, as we'll see in a moment, they are beginning to understand the identity of Jesus that he is true God, true man, the king of Israel. He's all these things. And the reason why we know that they got it right was notice, and this might be a little surprising, verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You might think, why does, why does Jesus do this? And we've seen this, if, if you've, uh, remember, if you've been in Mark, uh, there, this happens often. Jesus says to tell, he does a miracle and then he says, don't, don't tell anybody. And you might think, well, why? It's because if the disciples were to go to the crowds and say, listen, the king, the Jewish king has arrived. The crowds would go crazy. They would be like, okay, here comes uh, the kingdom 
the Rome is going to be vanquished. We're going to go to war. Go get your swords. But remember, as we're going to see in a moment, Jesus has come to die. And that's what the disciples and the crowds failed to understand. And so he tells them at this point, he strictly charged them to tell no one. It's going to be a, an obstacle to the cross if the crowds are following him. And again, it's an obstacle to what he came to do with his first coming. So students, this morning I would ask you, what, what is your view of Jesus? You guys are, are going to the school where you're faithfully taught the Bible? Maybe some of you, you, you know, you go to churches where the Bible's being taught, where the gospel is being proclaimed. Maybe some of you are out of homes where from the youngest of age you have heard the Bible read, you've heard about Jesus. Do you, do you truly understand the person of Christ? I would ask you this morning. This is a, a massive decision. That if somebody were to say to you, who is Jesus? You have to get this right. And I don't just mean get it right so that you can pass a Bible test or a theology test. Or get it right because... You know, you just want to please somebody. What I'm talking about is, do you understand who Jesus is to get it right so that you would trust him? Jesus is in a class all to himself. He is the son of God. He is true God, true man. He is the king. He is the Lord. That's what this passage is talking about. He's the king of kings. And it is only this one who can bring salvation. If Jesus was anything less, as sinners, we would have no hope. We need God to die. We need one who can take the wrath of God. We need one who can represent man, so is man. And there's so much more we could say about the identity of Christ. But this morning, ask yourself, do you have Jesus right, and have you responded then appropriately by trusting him for eternal life? Again, we talked earlier about decisions. You're going to make a lot of big decisions in your lives, especially as you look ahead as young people. This is the most important decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? Because of who he is, and as we'll see in a moment, what he's done. That leads us secondly to verses 31 to 33 here. And we're going to see the plan of Jesus. The plan of Jesus. Peter's confession was a huge turning point. Again, as I just said, it, 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 it separated the disciples from the crowds. Um, it was evidence of God's graces. It wasn't that Peter was smarter than the rest or the disciples were smarter than the crowds. God revealed this to Peter. God enabled him to profess this, and so that's what happened in uh, these events. It's a huge moment, but one of the lessons we're going to see in this next section is oftentimes, and this is true of our lives, when we have moments of spiritual high, they can often be followed by moments of spiritual low. Because when we, when we think things are going really well and life is good and, and we're growing and we understand so clearly God's love for us, then it's in those moments very often that we are tempted and we fail and we go really low and we think, what happened? You know, when we go from, you think, uh, you know, from a Sunday church to Monday morning, if, you, if you've ever gone on a, on, a, on a Bible retreat or a, a camp and you've had this wonderful time in God's Word, wonderful time with friends talking about the Lord, and then you come home and you go back to the same sins. This is what happens actually in this narrative here. Let me read verse 31 to 33. And he, 
that is, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I alluded to this earlier. One of the things about the Jews when it was related to their, the, the long-awaited king, again, they, they thought that he was going to come, and the moment that this Messiah arrived, that now it was basically going to be heaven on earth, in a sense. The kingdom's here. All of our enemies, Rome, they're going to all be gone. They're going to be defeated. We're going to own the land. We're going to have peace. Everything's going to be great. In their mind, there was no idea that, that the king would come and suffer. That, that didn't make any sense. Why, why would the king of kings come and be rejected by his own people, suffer, and as we know, go to the cross? They wanted heaven on earth, and what they got, and this includes the disciples in their understanding, is a rejected king. That was their expectation. The kingdom, bliss, peace. I have to think about expectations. Again, I, I often go to sports. I love sports. Uh, you think about uh, a team that gets a, a first-round draft pick who's, who's just supposed to be a once-in-a-generation player, and they think, you know, we got this draft pick. We're going to the Super Bowl next year. That's not usually how it works. Think about what's happening in Nebraska. We got a new coach. Now I think we know better than to think that a new coach brings, you know, college football playoffs in one year. But some people think that, hey, we got him. We got the man. Now we're in. That's not usually how it works, right? Usually there's a ups and downs. There's struggles for a year or two. And then you hope that there's glory at the end. We would say it this way, and this is the biblical concept. Suffering precedes glory. This is what we see with Jesus. Suffering precedes glory. Again, the Jews, though, didn't anticipate that. They thought if, if, if the king comes, glory follows immediately. And so here the Christ begins to talk to the disciples. And again, look down uh, verse 31. He says, the Son of Man, that is a reference to him as the Messiah, the king, must suffer many things, be rejected by the leadership, killed, rise again. And notice verse 32. He said this plainly. Jesus isn't mincing words here. He's not, try, he's not being you know, um, ambiguous with the disciples. He's going, let me tell you, guys, listen up. All right, huddle around, huddle around. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. And you think they'd be like, what? Huh? We thought, we thought the kingdom. He says it plainly. Notice what Peter does. And this is a prototypical Peter. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter doesn't understand that you cannot separate the person of Christ from the plan of Christ. Imagine this situation. Could you imagine being there if you're one of the 12? You're listening. You don't understand. You anticipate something totally different. And then Peter, again, the spokesman of the 12, goes, hey, Jesus, come over here. How dare you say something like that? Man, Peter's got some guts. 
He's pulling aside the creator of the world and rebuking him, the text says. After a great moment for Peter, again, you are the Christ, verse 29. Now it says, and he rebuked him. Peter is known for putting his foot in his mouth. Peter is known for often saying the wrong thing or expressing the wrong passion. He often does get a bad rap because the the reality of Peter is at least he's trying. But here he's wrong. And notice Jesus' response. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus wants to make sure they understand what's going on here. He rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The term Satan means adversary. It means opponent. And this is strong language. And you think, why is Jesus being so hard on Peter? I mean, Peter just had a a wrong expectation. It's because what Peter is doing is aligning himself, and there's a bit of ignorance here, but he's still, he's aligning himself with what Satan would love. Satan would love for Jesus to disobey the Father. Satan would love for Jesus to not go to the cross. Satan would love for mankind to remain in sin. And that's exactly what Peter's trying to do as well. No, 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 Jesus, you're not going to die. You're going to have glory. No, 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 Jesus, you're not going to be rejected. You're going to be praised. Peter is aligning himself with Satan's agenda, and that's why Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. That's why he says, you're you're setting your mind on the thing. Peter was focused on himself, what he wanted, what uh, what the disciples wanted, what the crowds wanted, rather than what was necessary for sinners. Again, I would ask you just practically, have you ever experienced something like what Peter is going through here? Again, this sort of, you've been doing well spiritually, and then guess what? The temptation comes and you begin to fail and you struggle. You go back to those old sins. This, this passage, one of the lessons here is a good reminder for us that in those moments when you're doing really well spiritually, when you're, when you're rocking it, you're growing, you're, you're understanding the Word, you're in the Word, you're having your devotions, you're, you're, you're growing as you go to church, as you're engaging with other believers and then there's those moments understand that a lot of times those moments come when we think we're doing well and then we get a little arrogant then we forget that the reason why we're growing is because of the grace of god not ourselves and so i think one of the lessons or warnings in this passage is students even when you're doing well depend on jesus even in the mo- those moments where you're growing, you're doing well, you're strong, you're, 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 your school year's going well, trust Christ, pray, seek Him, depend on Him, go to the Word. Because those are often times when we are tempted and we fail and we go from highs to lows. The point here, though, that Jesus wants the disciples to understand is that the plan of God is that He will be rejected and go to the cross. Jesus came, and this is essential to understand. Again, we're gonna, you're going to be singing this uh, Friday night, uh, chapels, uh, at your churches. During this season of Christmas, every, almost every Christmas carol goes back to the fact you know, we're not just celebrating a birth. We're celebrating the reason why he was born. What was the reason for the incarnation that God became man? So that he could die for sinners. 
This is necessary. The scriptures predicted it. It was necessary because we needed a substitute. Sinners need someone to pay the penalty because if we pay the penalty, it's hell. But Jesus came to die and take the penalty. And so he is saying these things to the disciples. In other words, he's saying if there's no cross, there's no salvation, they can't understand it, and he rebukes them. I'll just tell you this morning that when, when the gospel is proclaimed, and, and, and understand that, that glory will follow. Again, suffering precedes glory. Jesus will come again. Then there will be the kingdom. Then we'll, there will be glory, heaven. But in his first coming, he came to save sinners. He did not come to give us comfortable, easy lives. Sometimes, and maybe you've come across this, I would just tell you as young people, you are going to hear in the future at some point, someone say, you know, if you trust Jesus, your life is going to be simple and easy. I came across a quote from one man who was preaching it this way. He says, if you obey God, you will never be broke another day in your life. That's a lie. That is not what the Bible says. Rather, the gospel tells us, and we're going to see this in more detail in just a moment in our third point, that we, like Christ, first suffer, then glory. We have to understand, Jesus came and its purpose wasn't to make our lives comfortable now, here. He came to save us from our sins, to save us from the wrath of God. That's why He died on the cross. And so the focus is eternal life. The focus isn't just a comfortable, easy life now. You know, live 75, 80 years, have a comfortable life, have riches, never, never be broke another day in your life as this uh, so-called pastor had, had taught. Understand that the gospel actually tells us the opposite, that when you follow Christ, you will have every spiritual blessing, but life will be hard now, but glory will come. That leads us to the final section here, uh, verses 34 to 38, and we could say it's the pattern of Jesus. And we're, we're kind of breezing through, we're covering quite a bit here with, there's a lot of this passage, you could break this probably down into at least two messages, and so we're breezing through it. Let me read the final verses here, which speak of the nature of discipleship. Jesus uh, calls the crowd, that, that, that's assuming, so he had the 12, and there's, there must have been others there, other followers, and he calls them around, and he said to them, verse 34, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is coming off of what Peter just did. Again, Peter had said, Peter was setting his agenda before Jesus's, and now Jesus is saying, let me tell you what is my agenda. Let me tell you what is the plan. If you follow me, here's the pattern you're going to follow in my footsteps. What does this mean? The main instruction is verse 34. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
What is the evidence that one has come to saving faith? What does it mean to follow Christ? It first involves self-denial. It means that as a follower of Jesus, your desires, your ambitions, your way of life, you submit those things to His kingship. Instead of living for yourself, you live for Him. That's what changes when you come to saving faith. It's an evidence of that faith. A Christian is one who is Christ-centered, not me-centered, is the idea. How can you live for yourself when Jesus the King has saved you from yourself? He saved you from your sin. Secondly, he says, take up his cross. This is the idea that a follower of Jesus must be willing to suffer for Christ. and In some places, must be willing to die for Jesus. Every believer is willing to die. That's not the, the norm, obviously, in America. But there are places in the world where if you follow Christ, you could very well die for Christ. The idea of cross was a, a cross. You know, we, uh, we put crosses up on churches. We wear crosses. But cr- uh, the cross in the time of Christ during uh, Roman times was a, a sign of shame and ridicule, rejection, death. And Jesus is saying to bear your cross means you're willing to die. You're willing to take that shame for Him. Again, Coming to Christ doesn't mean riches, doesn't mean health and wealth. It means suffering. It means you're willing to serve Him wherever He takes you and whatever the consequences are. That's why in verse 35, He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Thirdly, the instruction of verse 34, He takes up His cross and follows me. This is stated positively now. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, you follow Him. You follow after Him. This is the evidence of saving faith. You lose your life now to gain your life. The Christian understands that. We're not perfect in that, by no means. None of us perfectly follow Christ. But this is our our, our pattern. This is our, our, our direction. As we follow Him, we want to serve Him, even if that means suffering. I would ask you this morning, is this your understanding of Christianity? Understand that Jesus, as we've considered the importance of His person, His plan, his, the work that the Father sent Him for, is your understanding of Christianity, I'm just going to add Jesus so that, you know, I kind of get that whole hell thing taken care of, but I can live my life and have Jesus too. You understand that He, he doesn't allow that. You can't do that when He's the Savior, the King. He's true God, true man. For those of you that have come to saving faith, you understand this. Again, you're not perfect, but you understand you love Christ, and you understand that your whole life is to serve Him because He's changed you in that way. Now you live for Him. There was once a time where you lived for self, and now you live for the one who is the Son of God, who is the King of your life. You have gotten Jesus right by the grace of God. Praise God for that. I would encourage you this morning, persevere. Continue to follow Him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross For you students this morning that are, these things are either new or you haven't believed, understand this morning the importance of Christ and my prayer is that you would come to saving faith. You would come to understand it is worth His demands. It is worth it to follow Him. You you will save your life if you give it up now. So think seriously about these things. I know you guys are going to be going to uh, is the uh, D groups here in a moment? There's some questions up on the screen.
I think you'll, you'll have those up there. Maybe jot those down. Think about it this way. How does the passage describe Jesus? Why is a right understanding of the person of Jesus important to one's faith? Spend some time discussing that, discussing the person of Christ. Are you committed to following Jesus? What are the evidences of saving faith? We've talked about them here in this passage. Examine your life. Do you see those evidences? Talk with others. Do they see that evidence? If not, why not? If so, be encouraged and praise God. Lastly, is following Jesus easy? What should a Christian be prepared for? Spend some time talking through that, praying through that, seeking the Lord for perseverance in those things. With that, let me pray for us. Again, thank you for the opportunity to come this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this time. I thank you for the school and just uh, their priority of the word, the gospel, uh, the love that is so evident of this school's love for you, Christ, and love for these students as they come through these doors. Father, thank you that you have revealed, you've given us your son, and you have revealed his person, his plan, what it means to follow him. Lord, I pray for the students, each and every one here today, that they would come, that they would make the right decision, that they would come to a true understanding, Jesus, of who you are and what you have done and why it was necessary for you to go to the cross. I pray they would come to saving faith, that their lives would be those who they've denied themselves and now they follow you. And now they are committed to do wonderful things for the kingdom, for your glory, for your honor. So Lord, continue to bless and bless them uh, this week, bless this season uh, with Christmas, that it would be a time, as was prayed earlier, of genuine worship as they genuinely worship you for who you are and why you have come, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you again.